Well, it's so good to be back with you guys here at uh, Elkdale Baptist Church. Um, was indeed here just a few years ago when I was beginning the program at Sanford University. And uh, now we're a little bit deep into it, beginning our third year this coming fall. And excited about that. We have um, right at 30 students who are part of our program right now who are training to do really just almost every kind of uh, ministry you can think of. Uh, young pastors in training and youth ministers and children's ministers and missionaries and media ministers, all kinds of uh, work there, but very happy, very pleased to be able to do that, that work right now at Sanford University. I'm glad to be here. I, I love your pastor, Pastor Corey. Um, you are blessed as a church to have Pastor Corey here, and of course, JB and Micah love these guys too, and JB, appreciate that prayer. Um, I want to ask you guys this morning as we get started to turn to, to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. That's where we're going to be focusing our efforts in this morning and our attention. I do want you to know that uh, <clears throat> you're, you're getting not the B team this morning, but the C team, all right? Or really, if you count Pastor Corey, the D team, I guess. Um, you know, I'm an Alabama fan, and uh, I know Pastor Corey's an Auburn fan. We can't help that. But, you know, when uh, Alabama kind of has a, uh, a tendency, if the, the guy who's not uh, the, the starting quarterback not doing so well, we call in the B team, right? We, that guy's going to come in and, and wear it out. But we don't call in the C team, and we certainly don't call in the D team and expect them to do well. But uh, Pastor Corey, I have to tell you this. He had called my coworker, Kevin Blackwell. Um, earlier a few months ago to see if he could fill in for him and Kevin is on vacation right now and so then he uh, put in a call to Chris Crane. Chris Crane is the director of the uh, Birmingham Metro Baptist Association one of the finest finest men and finest preachers anywhere and so um, Chris was going to be doing this but his mom um, was in very very poor health and she actually passed away Thursday morning and so Chris called me and I was glad to come in and step in and help um, do that. So y'all be praying for Chris and, uh, and his family today as they're dealing with the loss of his mom. I know he would deeply, deeply appreciate that. Well, let me uh, kind of catch you up as you're looking to Philippians 4 with, with my life recently. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our story of our family. About six weeks ago, we were doing what a lot of people have been doing. We were doing yard work. You know, we... Uh, uh, in this downtime, the, uh, the time for the, the, the coronavirus and, and having to stay home, we have invested more money in Lowe's and Home Depot than we ever have in the entirety of our marriage. I mean, we have been catching up with projects that needed to get done and doing things that we never even thought about. We had trees cut down and stumps ground, and we sodded our front yard and all this stuff we've been working on. And one of these days um, that we were doing this kind of work a few weeks back, um, we're out there minding our own business, working in our front yard, and a neighbor walks across from the cul-de-sac, and she said, um, would you guys ever be interested in selling your house? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, for the right price, we'd be happy to sell our house. We've been talking about it anyway with grown kids, time to downsize and that sort of thing, and, and kind of looking to the next phase of life, and, um, which means parking on the same level that you walk in on, you know, the next phase of life, and uh, mid-50s does that to you. And, uh, and, and so we said, sure. And she said, well, I've got a friend. Um, she's just gone through a divorce. She's a mother of three. Um, she's having to sell the house that she and her husband have lived in. And, and she needs a house. She would love to have one in this neighborhood. Um, could she come look at your house on Friday? Well, that was Tuesday. And understand, we didn't have the house on the market. We weren't even thinking about it. Um, our house looked like Sanford and Son lived there. Okay. And so we, we said, okay, um, we got to work hard and 
And uh, we, we did put a lot of time and effort into getting the house just right. She came in on Friday. On, um, on Sunday, we had a contract on the house. And it was great. It worked out fine. It just so happened that the lady who came to look at the house and is buying the house was one of our former church members, the last church I pastored. In fact, I um, was there when all three of her children were born. I did all three of their baby dedications. I baptized the oldest one. And so um, it, it was a nice thing to be able to provide a blessing to somebody and then also to receive a blessing because we're receiving more than we paid for the house. And so, you know, it was nice. But we also realized that that happened about five weeks ago, and we got to be out of the house by the end of this month. We lived there 16 years. Now, I know some people have lived there longer, but we've lived there 16 years. We have all of our stuff there. We have my son's stuff, my daughter's stuff. We moved my mother-in-law out of the house she had lived in for 45 years just a little while ago. We have all her stuff in the basement. We have, we have stuff that belongs to relatives, I think, eight generations back. We have everything in our basement. And so we started thinking, we got to go through all this. Um, I'm kind of a, a book, bookophile. I've got 60 boxes of books that my wife is now making me go through and thin out. I've got it down to 50 boxes, and so making progress. And, and, and so just a lot of things going on, and, and that's enough stress. You know, they say that, that moving is one of the top three stressors for a family, for an individual. But as we got into the moving, um, all of a sudden my wife hurt her back. And I mean, badly injured her back. She could barely move. She couldn't bend over. She couldn't do anything. And so all of a sudden, um, our workforce was kind of cut in half. Within a week, um, our daughter and her fiance um, both were diagnosed with COVID-19. I have tested negative, by the way. Just want to let you know that. And, uh, and so she and her, um, her fiance were, were sick and, and pretty sick. And and we had to quarantine them, um, him, of course, at his apartment, our daughter in her bedroom. And we would tell her, if you need to go out for some reason, um, let us know. We'll open all the doors and mask up and wipe everything down when you leave and all that. So we, we've been doing that. Um, because of that, though, my wife couldn't go to the doctor because we had to be quarantined also for two weeks. In the middle of all that, my son, who lived in Atlanta, he decided to move home and to work remotely because his lease was up and he uh, said, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the economy and all that. So he came home two days after moving in. His company cut 10% of their workforce, and he was one of the people who lost his job. And so in the middle of all this, it's just been one thing after the other. And, um, and it's been a little bit chaotic. It's been a little bit stressful, a little bit anxiety-inducing. Of course, add to that everything going on in America Everything going on with, with my job, I teach at Sanford where we're about to have 5,000 people come back to campus in just a few weeks. And we're not really sure what's going to happen then. And so we're making plans for all the things that possibly could happen and what we're going to do and how we're going to respond to them. In the meantime, riots happening around the nation. People deal, dealing with questions we, we've just kind of left to the side for a long time and even at Sanford, we're having all these discussions about race and justice and everything. And how do we handle those? And how do we get to a right place biblically on those things? Around our world, you can't turn on the news. People are rioting everywhere, even about things that happened over here. And then we have the pandemic on top of it. And nobody knows what's happening with that. Nobody knows. We have people saying that it's going to burn out. It'll be fine by August. We have other people saying it's going to mutate. and We're all going to be sick again. We just don't know. And in the midst of our chaos, we kind of need a word 
to bring us peace, don't we? You know, Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. Uh, that's not the word of encouragement, by the way. He said, in this world you will have trouble. That's a promise. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. Those things are going to come your way. But he bookended that statement with these statements. Before he said, you're going to have trouble, he said, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. Isn't that beautiful? I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And then he said, in this world you will have trouble. Then he said on the other end of it, but take heart for I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Now, folks, it's through this relationship with Christ, it's through learning his word, it's through discovering what he has for us that we begin to find peace in the midst of chaos. This morning we're going to look at a passage that's really been meaningful to my family, to me, in this uh, time of difficulty, in these times of chaos. It's helped us find some peace along the way. And uh, hopefully you've turned to Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9 by now. If you can't find it yet, I don't have much hope for you. Um, I'm going to be reading out of the uh, New International Version this morning, and I encourage you to read along with me. It says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. What does your story look like this morning? Is it chaotic too? I know I told you a little bit about what's going on, but there are people with a lot worse situations than we have. That may be your life right now. There are people struggling right now with the chaos that is life and not really knowing what to do about it. Well, this morning in this passage, there are five things we are told that we can do. Five ways that we can choose the path of peace in the midst of chaos. In fact, if you're taking notes and want to put down a title, write that down. Choosing the path of peace in the midst of chaos. Now, here's the way Paul writes his letters. Uh, the way Paul writes his letters is he all, always starts off with a kind of a theological beginning to his letters. He will. In fact, he starts off Philippians with some beautiful, beautiful theolo theological language, kind of finds its high point in chapter 2, where it's this, this beautiful ancient hymn of the church where he talks about having the same mind that's in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, who emptied himself, who became obedient to the point of death on a cross, and because of that, God highly exalted him that, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful, beautiful theological language. But then in Paul's letters, he always gets around to the second part of it, and he says, now here's what you're going to do. Here's what you need to do. That's what he does here in Philippians. In chapter 4, we hit this, you know, here's what you need to do part. And you note, he, he's very um, imperative here, telling the people what to do. And so let's look at that and let's listen to what Paul has to say to us this morning. Start off in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, 
Rejoice. He says it. He reiterates it. He says rejoice. And I would tell you this morning, the first thing you can do to choose the path of peace in the midst of chaos is to choose to rejoice. Choose to rejoice. It's a choice to rejoice. I know that rhymes, y'all. I'm so sorry. And, uh, but it is. It's a choice to rejoice. We, we choose whether or not we're going to do that. And the Bible is full of statements calling us to be people who rejoice. In Psalm 32, verse 11, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 97, verse 12, Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise His holy name. One of the most beautiful stories in Scripture that reminds us of the power of rejoicing is in the book of Nehemiah, where they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. When they got done, Ezra and all the priests began to read the word of God, and as the people heard it, they fell on their faces and they wept aloud. And Nehemiah and Ezra and all the priests went around and got them up. And they said, no, 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 get up, get up. Be happy and rejoice. This is a holy day to the Lord. And then they said this in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, for the joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Folks, I tell you this morning, we have a strength that the world doesn't have. We do. We have something that the world can't call on. We have this ability to rejoice in the Lord. And Paul says, do it always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. And remember, Paul writes this while he himself is in prison. Yet even in prison, he finds reason to rejoice in the Lord. He chooses that path. And when we choose that path, we find strength in doing so. We find peace in doing so. The best way we can choose to rejoice is just by worshiping. You know? God taught me something about worship this year. I teach a class <clears throat> there at Sanford, every undergrad has to take it. And so I'm one of the many, many people who teaches this class uh, where we go through the Bible, all the way through the Bible in one semester. And really it's all the way through the Bible in about 11 weeks of that semester. And so we cover from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. In fact, I have one day and an hour and five minutes I cover the book of Revelation. So we don't go real deep, but we uh, do cover the entirety of the Bible. And one of the things I noted as I was studying through Leviticus was um, how God calls us to worship. Now, I go ahead and tell you, not a lot of people find a lot in Leviticus that they hold on to. A lot of times, you know, it's a difficult book. But we find in there the holiness of God. We find in there statements like, love your neighbor as yourself. But here's what I noticed. <clears throat> as I was looking through God's description of all of the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus and how the people were to bring them to him, I realized that's the heart of worship. The heart of worship is not me coming in with my hands open saying, what can you give to me? The heart of worship is me coming in with my sacrifice saying, God, what can I give to you? I don't come in leaving with a big old bundle of stuff that God's given me. I come in and give everything to God and I leave empty handed. That's what worship is. And yet the beauty of it is it's by the emptying of myself that I am filled up with everything that God has for me. The Bible tells us that we're coming with two big types of sacrifices in the New Testament. You know, we don't sacrifice animals anymore, um, but we have two sacrifices we're called to give. In Romans 12, 1, it says we're to be a living sacrifice. So we're to sacrifice ourselves, our persons. And then in Hebrews 13, verse 15, it says that we're to offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that continually proclaim his name. 
And so I would ask you, when you step into worship, how do you step into worship? I'll tell you, it changed the way, it changed Sunday mornings for me. It really did. You see, I'd stepped away from being a pastor, a minister. After 32 and a half years, I stepped out of church ministry and into academic ministry. And all of a sudden, I found that on Sunday mornings, I didn't have anything to do and nobody knew who I was. In fact, they were more likely to know me as Beth's husband because she sings on the praise team than anything else. And I found out that I now had to relearn worship because I wasn't trying to preach and I wasn't paying attention to the PowerPoint. I wasn't going around and greeting people. I was sitting in a pew and God taught me in that moment, empty yourself, empty yourself. Come and offer the sacrifice of yourself and of praise to me. When we rejoice, we find peace. So, choose to rejoice. But look at number two. Go to verse five. Verse five says, let your gentleness, excuse me, let your gentleness, uh, sorry, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. I'm going to grab this water down here that was nicely provided for me. Okay, look at the key word in there, gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Um, You may look at that and say, well, what's the deal with gentleness? Why is Paul putting that in there? In in the middle of all these things that, yeah, uh, we're looking at rejoicing and prayer and everything else we're going to look at here. Why does Paul put gentleness in there? I would argue with you that it's because gentleness is very important to our life and our walk as a Christian. If you don't believe me, look at some of the other places gentleness is brought up in the, uh, in the New Testament. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Paul outlines the fruit of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit <clears throat> is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In Ephesians 4, verse 2, <clears throat> Paul says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In 1 Timothy 6, 11, Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and what? Gentleness. Another young pastor, Titus, Paul writes to him in Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever's good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. And Peter gets in the game too, 1 Peter 3, 15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Why the big focus on gentleness. I think it's to counteract the tendency that we have as human beings to not be gentle. If you look up a, uh, if you look up a definition of gentleness or gentle, it tells you more about what gentleness is not than what it is. It'll say that it's not harsh. It's not violent. It's not rough. And yet look at how we are as human beings. We are harsh and rough and violent, aren't we? When I talk to my students about gentleness and the importance of it, I always tell them, if you don't believe that that we're everything but gentle as human beings, go read the comment section of, of any article. Just pick one. 
Randomly pick one and go read the comment section. You could have an article like this. Firemen save kitten from tree. Family rejoices, everyone's safe. Scroll down to the comments. You won't get very far in before you have somebody, I hate cats, they're so stupid, they climb trees and they can't get back down out of them. Should have left it there to die, right? And then another one, I hate firemen. I, and, and, it's, and these horrible, horrible statements, I hate you, and, and all of a sudden, it, it just turns into this, this big ball of harshness and anger and violence. And that's just the way we're wired up as human beings. And God says, let's, let's don't do that. Instead, let's be gentle. It says, let your gentleness be evident. Let your gentleness be evident. When people look at you, they should see gentleness. Now you say, but, but being gentle, that sounds a lot like being weak. I'll tell you this, one of the most gentle people, maybe the most gentle person to ever walk the face of the earth was Jesus Christ. And here's a picture of his gentleness. The picture of his gentleness is him hanging on the cross. You know, I often hear people say, it was my sin that placed him on the cross. It was his will that placed him on the cross. He chose to do that because of our sin. It was his will that kept him on the cross. And as he hung on that cross and he died for our sins willingly, the Bible says he could have called legions of angels to come to his rescue. But instead he hung there, the power of gentleness displayed on the cross and as he hung there, he didn't have vile, horrible, rough, harsh, violent things to say about those who were killing him. Do you know what he said about them to his father? He said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's gentleness. And folks, in a world that's going to be violent toward us and harsh toward us, and even more so as we see the day of the Lord approaching, it's incumbent on us even more so as God's people to be people of gentleness. It's in it that we find peace and it's in gentleness that we bring peace to others. Let's go back to verse six. In verse six, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You know, I think if, if we consider ourselves to be sinless, just go look at the first part of Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything and right away most of us find ourselves in the camp of being sinful, don't we? It's hard to obey that one, isn't it? Don't be anxious about anything. But instead, he says, by, by prayer, with supplication, and thanksgiving, present your request to God. There I would say the path that we choose there is we choose to be prayerfully thankful. Choose to be prayerfully thankful. Uh, about 16 years ago, I finished my, my tenure as the associate pastor at First Baptist Montgomery. Uh, where I worked under Jay Wolf for four years. Loved Jay Wolf, another one of the finest pastors um, on the planet. And, and Jay has a way with words. And my wife and I would often go to lunch and go to lunch with other church people, and we would discuss the things he would say, all kinds of great sayings he would come up with, you know. And, and he had one one Sunday morning. He said, um, as he looked at us, he asked the question, are, are, you, are you humbly grateful or are you grumbly hateful? Look at that. Are you humbly grateful or are you grumbly hateful? And so we go to lunch later on, and I knew that one would come up, and I said, you know, honey, what'd you catch today? And she's like, I love that thing he said. And then she said, are you grumbly hateful or are you humbly grumbly? 
I said, honey, you, you, I think you missed it. I think you missed it just a little bit. You missed it. Well, listen, most of us miss it when it comes to being thankful, don't we? Most of us kind of drop the ball when it comes to being grateful. That's why the Bible is forever saying things to us like this. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Not giving it a shot every once in a while, but overflowing with thankfulness. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16.17 and 18, he reminds us that, that we are to rejoice always in 16. And then in 17, he says, pray without ceasing. And then in verse 18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will concerning you in Christ Jesus. It kind of mushes all together the first three points right there. I told you that uh, we've been living kind of a chaotic life. Um, my wife has really been deeply stressed, um, not just with her back, but with moving and everything else. In the midst of this, she has a mom um, who has dementia that we haven't been able to see for months. We talked to her on the phone, and she slips away a little bit every day. Last week, she called and said, what's my last name? I can't remember. Now, my wife had to walk through her, why her last name is Bush and who her husband was and when they met and all about her life and had to just recount all of this for her and all the stress just building up on my wife. We don't know where we're going to live. We have no idea. We have a temporary place to go, but uh, that just happened in the last week and a half where that came into place and all this. And so just all this stress laying on top of her, and she would cry, and, and she's not a crier. She's, she's super outgoing. In fact, you know, she can talk to a brick wall, and the brick wall talk back. She's just that kind of extrovert and all this, and she's always this upbeat, positive person. Here she was just upset, crying, uh, just filled with anxiety. And, and uh, one night last week, we were, we were praying, and I grabbed her hands. We, we were lying in the bed. I grabbed her hands. and said, let's pray before we go to sleep, and, and before I could say anything, she started praying. And for 15 minutes straight, she prayed. And most of that prayer was her thanking God. It was beautiful. She just thanked God for everything he's done in our lives over and over. And she thanked God for what he's going to do. She even thanked God for the struggles we're going through and how those are going to mold and shape us and help us to be who he wants us to be. It was just a, a beautiful, powerful prayer. And when she got done... She looked at me, and, and it was like I was looking at a different person. The anxiety was lifting. She said, I feel better now. I said, man, I do too. Because as her husband, I've been trying to fix it, and I had to come to the realization, I can't fix it. But God can. And when she just started lifting up gratitude, just thanksgiving, just this torrent, this avalanche of thanksgiving to God, it just changed everything in the moment. I would ask you, how's your Thanksgiving going? Are you a person who has learned how to be humbly grateful? I have to make sure I say it the right way. Uh, have you learned how to do that? If not, I want to encourage you. Listen to the words of Paul here. Listen to, to the 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you 
in Christ Jesus. It will transform who you are. Let's go back to verse 8. Back in Philippians 4, verse 8, Paul then says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Let me ask you this. Is that how your mind works? That this would be a yes, this would be a no. Is that how your mind works? Do you sit and focus on the things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy? Are those the things that occupy your brain case? I think we struggle as human beings for those things to occupy our minds. And yet the Bible tells us that in Christ we are new creations, that everything is new, everything can be transformed. And so I tell you, write this down as number four. The number four thing to choose is choose to transform your thinking. Choose to transform your thinking. I learned uh, a great lesson about transformation and thinking when I was, I was in my 20s, early 20s. Um, I was a young um, minister, uh, uh, at the time, music and youth. I, I was, uh, uh, you know, doing two jobs, so I was getting paid twice the salary I'd been paid. And I was making money living at home, and so I had me a bright red sports car that I drove, and, and I drove it fast. And, uh, and I enjoyed driving. I had about a 40-minute drive on Sunday mornings from my house to my church. And, and I like to get there fast and drive um, the freeway. And, and, and I tell you what, if anybody ever got in my way and, and, and cut me off from driving fast like I wanted to drive, I had a lot of choice things to say and to think about them. You might could say I was a little bit of a road rager. In fact, here's what I would do. I'd drive on Sunday mornings to church, and on the way, I wouldn't cuss people, but I would say unkind things to them out loud in my car, and I would talk, talk about how they don't know how to drive and everything, and I'd be angry, my face flushed and red, and I'd get to the church, and I'd go teach the Bible to students. And one day I was on my way to church, and somebody pulled out in front of me, an old pickup truck, going as slow as Christmas. And I pulled up behind him, and all that welled up in me. And it was like in that moment, God said, Scott, you don't have to be this way. Scott, I don't want you to be this way. Scott, it is inconsistent for you to be this way and then to go and to teach my word to young people. It's, hypocrit it's hypocritical is what it is. And it was like in that moment, God worked on me as I'm going slowly behind this pickup truck. And God says, Scott, in this moment, you can choose to do something else. You can choose to think a different way. I've given you that power and that authority through my Holy Spirit to be somebody different than who you are right now. And y'all want you to know that was one of the most freeing moments in my life when I realized I don't have to be what my wiring has designed me to be. I don't have to be what the world would call me to be. I can be who God's called me to be. Then I can act the way God has called me to act. And I can say and do the things God's called me to say and do because God has given that authority in my life. One of the scriptures he embedded in my life was Romans 12 too, where he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then, and listen to the then, 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he says. Then is when you are able to live out God's will and to test it and approve it and show that it is what it is. So I'd ask you, how's your thinking? Zig Ziglar, the, uh, the famous Zig Ziglar out of Texas, um, used to put it this way. He said, uh, we all need a checkup from the neck up to stop our stinking thinking, you know? Jay Wolf used to say that all the time, too. I had to find the source of it. It was Zig Ziglar. Get a checkup from the neck up to stop your stinking thinking. How many of us could use a checkup from the neck up? Interesting thing about that is it doesn't really begin from the neck up. It begins in the heart, doesn't it? Because Jesus in Matthew 12 said it's from the overflow, the abundance of the heart, that the mouth speaks in Matthew 12, 34. So I would ask you, but what does your mouth say about what's in your heart? Is there a transformation that needs to go on in your thinking so that rather than thinking the way you do, you're thinking the way that you are called to think as a believer? The Bible says God has given us the power and the authority and that he will do the work of transformation if we will simply submit to him. And now to verse number nine. Back to verse number nine. <clears throat> Paul concludes this section by saying, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Put it into practice. If you're keeping notes, write down number five, choose to learn and live God's way. Does your heart sound like this? Does your heart sound like the psalmist in Psalm 25 verses four and five, where he said, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Is that the cry of your heart? Show me your ways, God. Teach me your paths so that I can follow you. Truth of the matter is we come sometimes struggle in this. We, uh, we have in the state of Alabama and really around the United States it's really happening in, in a lot of churches. There's begun to be a new emphasis on disciple making. Uh, JB mentioned that, that kind of my passion is the Great Commission. My passion is disciple-making as a pastor. God had done a work in my life and my ministry the last five years. I was a pastor and had really re refocused my ministry entirely on, on making disciples. And I know Corey is the same way. He and I, uh, we were involved in a group of pastors who went up to Nashville several years ago. And, and we, out of that group, there, there came a bigger group and a big passion among pastors to focus on disciple-making. And we began to, um, Daniel Edmonds at the state office, the state, uh, Alabama State Board of Missions, has put together all kinds of wonderful seminars, training pastors, has gathered groups uh, of pastors together to, uh, to, to train each other and to iron sharpens iron and that sort of thing, to disciple one another. And, and there's a movement that's afoot of people making disciples. But listen, it's got to filter down into the church. I was at one of these seminars um, a year or two ago, and um, I was at Sanford already, and, but still going. I love to go to these seminars because I myself need to be trained. I'm teaching disciple-making. I teach disciple-making one and disciple-making two. That's what my students take. The first courses they take in Christian ministry, we teach them go and do the Great Commission. 
And in this seminar, there was a, a pastor who kind of stood up and he was, he was very frustrated and a little bit angry at his church. He said, I'm trying to institute disciple-making in my church, but the biggest stumbling block I have is my deacons. A lot of guys were like, yeah, yeah, you know, those, talk, those bad deacons. And, uh, and, and I guess maybe because I'm not a pastor anymore, I, I can say things now I couldn't have said. And, uh, and I looked at him and I said, let me ask you a question. How many of those deacons have you discipled? Then we broke for the night and we all went to bed. The next morning we got up. And this guy, and he's kind of a big guy. He's got a big bushy beard. And he got kind of a scary-looking guy to me. And uh, he, he came up to me and, and, like, kind of rushed me and got right up in my face. And he said, I didn't sleep at all last night because of you. I'm like, man, did I snore that loud? I, I, now, what happened? He said, no. He said, that thing you said about discipling my deacons, he said, God kept me awake all night long. And I thought about that and prayed about it all night long. And, and, and by this morning, God had put two of them on my heart. And as soon as I get home, I'm going to start talking to those guys about discipling them. I said, that's a good place to start, brother. It's a good place to begin. Listen, don't wait for your pastor to get all like that about you and to finally come to you. Start seeking your own opportunities to be discipled. If you've never been trained as a disciple so that you know the Word of God and you're living the Word of God, then I would tell you, choose right now to learn it and to live it. Look at what Paul said back in that verse. Whatever you've learned, whatever you've received, whatever you've heard, whatever you've seen, maybe you've learned, maybe you've received, maybe you've heard. Maybe you need to see it, though. Maybe you've never seen somebody lead somebody to Christ. Maybe you, you, you think, I could learn if I could just see it happen. Well, go find JB, find Micah, find your pastor, and say, look, the next time you know you're going to go share Christ with somebody, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. I want to learn hands-on how this happens. It's amazing what you learn when you actually see it in action. But then it's incumbent on you to put it into action. The Bible talks a lot about putting it into action. In James 1, verses 22 through 25, James writes, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. That word deceive means lie. Don't merely listen to the word and lie to yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Did you know there's a psychological disorder where people don't recognize their own face? You heard of that? I can't tell you the name of it. I'd have to look it up. Go Google it later on. But it, there is. There's a psychological disorder. And you know, we call that a disorder because it's not normal. It's not normal not to be able to recognize your own face. And here, James says it's a disorder. It's not normal for you as a Christian to see the Word of God and to walk away and not do it. It's not normal. The normal thing is that rather than lying to ourselves, rather than deceiving ourselves, we listen to the Word, we do what it says. In fact, he goes on to say, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. They will be blessed to be blessed in what they do. Now, I opened up this whole message by telling you that 
Paul talks about how we can find peace. So far, I really hadn't talked about peace, but let me go back just a second to that, that very first passage. I want you to note that in verse 7, Paul kind of sums up the first section. Choose to rejoice. Choose gentleness. Choose to be prayerfully thankful. And then he says in verse 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, it goes beyond your ability to understand it, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Could you use Jesus standing at the door of your heart and guarding it right now? Guarding your heart and mind. How beautiful. What a beautiful picture. And then go down to verse 9 at the very end of this passage. After he sums it all up, put it into practice, he says, and he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Two beautiful statements. The peace of God will be with you, and the God of peace will be with you if you do these things. Let's do these things. In fact, let's ask God to help us to do these things. Will you pray with me? Father, what a beautiful, powerful word you've given us. As you wrote through the Apostle Paul, these, these amazing things that, that if we simply will put these things into, into action in our lives, we will have your peace that goes beyond our ability to understand it, to come and to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And Father, that beautiful statement that if we put these things into practice, that you, you yourself, the God of peace will be with us. Father, we need to exchange our anxiety for your peace. And I ask that you would help us to do that. Father, help us to be people who rejoice always. Help us to be people of gentleness. Help us to be people who are prayerfully thankful. Father, help us to be, to be people who, who have transformed thinking by the work of your Spirit. And Father, help us to learn and to live your way, knowing that in these things, your promises of peace are good. Father, we, we pray that you'll help us to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.